Chapter Nineteen of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter Nineteen: The Battle of the Wilderness. Again, in the spring of eighteen sixty-four, the two great hosts confronted each other. The northern army was led by a man whose name had ever been synonymous with victory. Wherever his banner had been spread to the breeze, the eagle had perched upon it. Thus Grant held the faith of the soldiers and the people. The rebel army was commanded by the same great captain who had been at its head since the Battle of Seven Pines, and whom the men adored. Both armies had unquestioning faith in the justice of their cause, and both felt certain of success. The United States government had made unparalleled preparations for the contest with a view to overwhelming, by enormous weight, the proportionately small force opposed. General Grant then commenced his operations on the 2nd of May, 1864, by what is known as the Overland Campaign. The Army of the Potomac might well hope to end the struggle in one campaign, for never had it been in such splendid condition as regards efficiency, morale, and numbers. Hooker had declared a year before that he commanded the finest army on the planet, but even his magnificent hosts could not compare with the legions of Grant. The official returns of the Army of the Potomac on the 1st of May, 1864, show present for duty 120,380 men of all arms, not counting the Ninth Corps, which joined Grant in May, and which numbered 20,780, nor Butler, with 18,680 more, in all 149,340, with which to capture Richmond. The rebel army was brimful of fight, and though outnumbered by three to one almost, stood in their tracks awaiting the shock with no misgivings as to the result. General Lee's total infantry force at the beginning of the campaign was 50,403, to which add the cavalry force 8,727, and the artillery corps 4,854, as given in the same returns, and we have a total present of all arms of 63,984, in round numbers 64,000 men. Besides the Grand Army of the Potomac, Butler, with the corps of Gilmore and W.T. Smith, were to establish themselves in an entrenched position near City Point and operate against Richmond, or invest the city from the south side, or be in a position to effect a junction with Grant coming down from the north. Richmond was to be threatened westward also by General Siegel, who was to form his forces into two columns, the one of 10,000 strong, under General Crook, to move for the Kanawha and operate against the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad, the other, 7,000, under Siegel in person, to menace Lee from the direction of the Shenandoah Valley. And lastly, Sheridan, with 10,000 cavalry, was to get in Lee's rear and take Richmond by a dash. Grant's plans were carefully matured, and every contingency provided for. The northern government realized that if this great aggregation of forces failed to win, then the doctrine of an indivisible union was a failure. General Grant believed that the Army of the Potomac had not been fought for all it was worth, and he determined to move straight against his adversary, and by virtue of his superior numbers, fight him day by day until he simply wore him out. His watchword was, advance, attack, and overwhelm the enemy, 
whenever and wherever found. He announced that he intended to fight it out on this line if it took all summer. There was no science, no strategy attempted. Grant evidently realized that to try outmaneuvering such a consummate soldier as Lee on his own ground would be absurd. Although one of the greatest generals of all times, Grant will never be considered a master of the art of warfare. He came perilously near an irretrievable defeat at Shiloh, and his first campaign against Vicksburg was a failure. But Grant never lost his head, and his tenacity of purpose was phenomenal. His mettle was soon to be severely tried, for his work was cut out for him when he entered the wilderness. Lee adopted the same tactics that won him the victory over Hooker. He threw Longstreet's corps full upon the enemy, hoping to overwhelm their left wing, and, but for the wounding of Longstreet, might have succeeded. Three days of fighting ensued, and Grant, finding that he could make nothing by a front attack, started a series of flank movements, and then it was that Lee, who stood strictly on the defensive, followed Johnston's tactics in his defense of Atlanta. Lee's army was in the very pink of condition. It was probably as fine a fighting machine as the world ever saw, and the men had implicit confidence in their leader as well as in themselves. They had learned how to rush, how to retreat, and how to hang on to an important point by their eyelids. No sooner would a line be formed when the enemy was near than every man was busy throwing up a little mound for protection. I ain't grudged nary a cupful of earth I done throwed on this here pile, said a piney woods Georgian during a pause in a fire so severe that it had leveled a forest oak. Give Johnny Reb his bayonet and a tin cup, and he would do his work quicker than a professional sapper and miner could with pick and spade. It was these improvised defenses that Grant stormed in the slashes of Spotsylvania, and the withering fire that came from the depths of the woods was bewildering to the Federal officers. Often they would sweep the front with musket and grape before an attack, until it seemed as if the ground had been scraped by a patent harrow and no living creature was left. Then the columns would plunge confidently forward into the green depths, only to be met with a storm of lead that caused many a gallant soldier to take the measure of an unmade grave. Behind these foot-high mounds the rebel infantry felt safe, and they could shoot accurately, for when a man is lying down he aims his best, for his gun-barrel naturally follows the conformation of the ground. A soldier firing, when erect, invariably shoots too high, and every veteran infantryman knows how loath he was to charge when he knew the enemy was lying prone on the earth. By a wise foresight, Lee ordered the musket cartridges to contain three buckshot in addition to the ball, and the hail of buckshot through the tangled bushes was like driving leaden rain. Grant, perceiving that he could not force his way in a direct line, now tried a maneuver, and swung his army to the left, aiming to seize Spotsylvania Courthouse, and thus interpose his forces between Lee and Richmond. This step was foiled by Fitz Lee's cavalry, which held their ground for two days of desperate fighting, enabling Lee to hurry up his infantry and plant his army across Grant's line of march. By this movement, Lee was able to hold the Army of the Potomac in check for twelve days, causing them within that time a loss of 40,000 men. The rebel loss was not one-third so great, for they fought generally on the defensive, behind rifle pits. On the evening of the 5th of May, Grant's line of battle, 
from some misconception of orders, was fatally defective. Burnside, who was designated to support the Federal right wing, remained several miles in the rear, and the Federal flank was in the air. General Gordon, on the extreme left flank of the rebel army, discovered this fact through his scouts and verified it by a personal examination. He instantly formed a plan to roll up Grant's army as Jackson did at Chancellorsville. General Gordon, in his book, declared that he could have wrecked Grant's army, but when he laid the providential opening for a decisive stroke before General Early, that Confederate Marplot refused his sanction. General Gordon, in his book, Reminiscences of the Civil War, says, General Early, in his book, states that General Ewell agreed with him as to the impolicy of making the morning flank attack which I so earnestly urged. Alas, he did, and in the light of revelations subsequently made by Union officers, no intelligent military critic, I think, will fail to sympathize with my lament, which was even more bitter than at Gettysburg, over the irreparable loss of Jackson. But for my firm faith in God's providence, and in his control of the destinies of this republic, I should be tempted to imitate the confident exclamation made to the master by Mary and Martha when they met him after the death of Lazarus. Hadst thou been here, our brother had not died. Calmly reviewing the indisputable facts which made the situation at Gettysburg and in the wilderness strikingly similar, and considering them from a purely military and worldly standpoint, I should utter my profoundest convictions were I to say, had Jackson been there, the Confederacy had not died. Had he been at Gettysburg when a part of that second corps, which his genius had made famous, had already broken through the protecting forces and was squarely on the Union right, which was melting away like a sandbank struck by a mountain torrent, when the whole Union battle line that was in view was breaking to the rear, when those flanking Confederates in their unobstructed rush were embarrassed only by the number of prisoners, had Jackson been there then, instead of commanding a halt, his only order would have been, Forward, men, forward, as he majestically rode in their midst, intensifying their flaming enthusiasm at every step of the advance. Or had he been in the wilderness on that fateful 6th of May, when that same right flank of the Union army was so strangely exposed and was inviting the assault of that same portion of his old corps, words descriptive of the situation and of the plan of attack could not have been uttered fast enough for his impatient spirit. Jackson's genius was keener scented in its hunt for an enemy's flank than the most royally bred setter's nose in search of the hiding covey. The fleetest tongue could not have narrated the facts connected with Sedgwick's position before Jackson's unerring judgment would have grasped the whole situation. His dilating eye would have flashed, and his laconic order, Move at once, sir, would have been given with an emphasis prophetic of the energy with which he would have seized upon every advantage offered by the situation. But Providence had willed otherwise. Jackson was dead, and Gettysburg was lost. He was not now in the wilderness, and the greatest opportunity ever presented to Lee's army was permitted to pass. General Lee in person was on the extreme right wing, and with Longstreet's full corps he determined to attack and try to roll up their left flank and get in their rear. The Orange Plank Road was the only thoroughfare in the vicinity. There were blind roads and cattle tracks that wound in and out in bewildering confusion through scrub pine, wild plum, and black jack sapling, the undergrowth so dense that one could not see ten feet ahead. 
Many of the officers advanced by the aid of the compass, for all sense of direction was lost when once in the jungle. The line under Longstreet made its way slowly and ran plumb upon Grant's left wing and swept everything before it. General Humphreys of the Federal Army states in his book that the onslaught was so sudden and fierce that the Federal lines and reserves were in inextricable confusion, but that the rebel attack unexpectedly and inexplicably halted. The cause of this fatal halt was the wounding of Longstreet, who fell from his horse at the moment of victory, and as was the case of General Albert Sidney Johnston at Shiloh, stopped the impetus of the charge and lost the fruits of the well-planned advance. The cavalry of the north outnumbered that of the south by two to one. It was better mounted, better armed, for it had the Spencer and Henry repeating rifles and army muzzle-loading carbines. Its horses had abundant feed and were in good condition, while the poor rebel animals were forced to rely half the time upon what pasture they could get on the halts, and most of them, before the campaign was half over, were wretchedly emaciated. But these same horses were blooded, and would run until they fell, and the riders were like their horses. So in the sweet evenings of May, when the vivid green of the young leaves almost hid the white and red of the blossoms, there in the dim recesses of the Virginia forests the war squadrons mustered, and the steeds literally sniffed the battle from afar, standing with dilated eye and erect ear as the blare of the bugle sounded through the woods and the monetary voice of the cannon was borne in the distant mutterings. Our detail from the regiment found the 4th Virginia Cavalry in position near Spotsylvania Courthouse. Everything evidenced to the experienced eye that a battle was imminent. In the road nearby, ordnance wagons were pushed to the front. Ambulance horses were hitched ready to rush to the scene of action as soon as the first gun should sound. Orderlies and couriers, as well as staff officers, were going at a gallop. The stragglers, thinking it full time to disappear, were using every ruse to drop out of column, dismounting and busily examining their horses' feet, feigning that the girth of the saddle was broken, and lining the road on the way to the rear. The colonel's black cook was spurring by on his mule, more intent on getting a safe place than his master's dinner. During a halt, while the men were wiping the perspiration from their faces, a sudden ripple ran down the line. "'Give way!' came the cry. "'Here comes Major Breathed of Stuart's Horse Artillery.' And soon the rapid hoof-strokes of the horses and jingling of the equipments were heard, and as the artillery passed along the road with the boy major at its head, the sunburnt troopers arose to a man and saluted him with the wild rebel yell. It was a tribute that the oldest general in the army would have been proud to receive, and I see again the gallant boy's face flushed to a deeper red as he lifted his cap and rode with bared head through the lines. The mantle of the lamented Pelham, the greatest light artillerist of America, had fallen on Jim Brethed, the young Marylander. He was about twenty-three years old, but like a boy of eighteen. He was muscular and athletic, with a fine head well set on his square shoulders. He was not what the ladies would term a handsome fellow, but his character was shown in his dark gray eyes, which flashed and gleamed in a very striking way when he was roused. His voice was rich and rare, being low and deep. General Munford, who knew him best, wrote of him, A more dashing, gallant, generous-hearted Confederate soldier never drew a saber or fired a cannon. 
he was recklessly brave himself and ever ready to lead his batteries where the few artillery officers would be willing to risk their guns and then he would turn over his guns to the next officer under him and dash and lead the cavalry in a charge while he would take these personal risks and would stand by his guns or his wounded men to the last extremity he would never give up a man dead or alive if there was any possible way of carrying his body out of the reach of the enemy he loved to hear the roar of artillery and to witness the flashing of the guns he was a splendid artillerist and would frequently run to a gun and adjust it and sight it himself when it was not doing the work he expected of it but while he slashed and dashed in and out of a battle he was as generous as he was brave and having been a doctor before the war he often ministered to the men who a short time before had stood up before his guns and fallen in the fight he had led against them the black horse cavalry was dismounted in a strip of woods a short distance from todd's tavern and lay flat upon the ground behind a fence awaiting an attack between them and the wood half a mile away intervened a large field across this broad stretch the bullets of the yankee skirmishers came sailing giving warning of their errand by a little puff of smoke issuing from the woods and floating upwards until lost in air the situation had its charm for the missiles did not come in profusion but yet often and close enough to make the position exciting and string the nerves to a tight tension as the little rift of smoke would rise across the way a dozen carbines would reply and ring out their stirring chorus this was returned and the firing increased but it was all excitement and little danger few were hit and as the sun declined bringing out all those fresh pure airs and sweet odors which seemed to have been dormant all day in the forest every soldier saw that there would be no real work at that time it was amusing to watch some of the new soldiers as the bullets came singing over their heads they changed color and flattened themselves to the earth not daring to look up others became hysterical danger affecting them like a strong stimulant they would laugh wildly idiotically or give a half-smothered scream as a bullet split the top rail of the fence behind which they were cowering their relief must have been great when at dusk the enemy ceased firing and stopped damaging the trees during the fusillade the regiment lost only ten men wounded and judging from the rapid firing of the enemy much lead must have been wasted in placing those ten rebels hors de combat well they were rich enough not to grudge it neither did the safe and sound body of any rebel there so in that respect things were equal the campaign was all planned that night by the privates around the campfire, and really some shrewd guesses were made with regard to unfolding events. The troopers were disposed to grumble and curse the luck which compelled them to fight dismounted. It was an innovation which had crept in lately upon their old custom, and one which they did not like. This fighting on foot was making infantrymen of them, they said, and furthermore it was dangerous much more deadly, in fact, than a rattling charge or dashing rush. Those who had gotten transfers from the infantry to the cavalry, in the belief that this latter branch of the service was comparatively safe, now discovered what a sad mistake they had made. They found that the cavalry was called upon to do double service. It was no longer to be used only as eyes for the army, but as the mailed hand also which was to strike. They were to fight upon horseback when they met horsemen, and on foot when they met infantrymen. Consequently, the disgust of those timid foot soldiers who had joined the cavalry because a dead man with spurs on could not be found, was laughable in the extreme. 
instead of being ensconced in a safe place with plenty of booty and plunder the cavalry during the fourth year of the war had become the most exposed branch of the service whose ratio of loss was higher than that of any other it was to be hard riding brushes skirmishes combats and battles all the time during the campaign with a constant dropping of names from the rolls which went to make up a fearful aggregate the cavalryman could soon hold up his head proudly as he pointed to a list of the dead and continued to listen to the eloquent silence which answered the roll-call of the sergeant a silence which told the tale but too well the sixth of may was an unusually hot day for that time of year the men were soon in the saddle and then began a series of manoeuvres which puzzled the brain of every soldier there they rode like the drunken sailor up and down and all around and raised a dust in which it was almost impossible to breathe where are we going was on the lips of every trooper but none could answer each one thought there would be tough fighting on the morrow for the yankees were on hand and evidently it was not the intention of fitz lee to retreat but there they were like a darky delivering invitations to a rustic blowout the fourth did not halt until about noon and then the troopers opening their dusty haversacks ate their rations of fat raw meat and crackers soon the bugle rang and the column was put in motion from the right came the angry boom of the guns but as yet the small arms were silent crossing a field in that direction the black horse dismounted and were placed as support to a section of stuart's horse artillery that was replying to a yankee battery about six hundred yards distant and who were hurling their iron missiles with wonderful accuracy right into what seemed to be an onlooker the midst of the rebel battery for the cavalrymen securely placed in a ravine it was a grand sight to watch the evolutions it was breathed light battery the crack guns of the army of northern virginia and the way they were handled by the men was a spectacle calculated to stir the most sluggish blood and make it run like quicksilver through the veins the cannoneers were stripped to the waist displaying their brawny arms and hairy chests they swung the guns around as if steel and brass had lost their weight and were the playthings of the hour in loading the men would throw themselves unconsciously into attitudes and magnificent poses which could a sculptor have caught would have made his fame the swelling muscles came out like whipcords denoting the hidden force of the frame every position was an exponent of the strength of manhood in its rich youth while each figure was thrown into bold relief against the flashes of fire which darted from the muzzles of the guns the shells of the enemy burst all around but by a wonderful chance did not explode in the midst of the battery which formed as it were the hub of the wheel rimmed round with fire the rim was a cordon of danger to cross yet when once crossed there was safety to be found within many soldiers especially old artillerymen often observed this strange fact a torrent of hail falling through the air ploughing and tearing the earth to the right and left in front and in rear filling the air at a distance either way with bursting fragments yet not hurting a man in this instance no one was wounded nor was any injury done except the killing of a horse and the shattering of a caisson in the rear the batteries moved off and the smoke soon drifted away back to the horses and a quick remounting of cavalrymen was but the work of a moment the walk was increased to a trot and in half an hour we drew rein in the vicinity of todd's tavern near the position held in the morning 
A long halt followed. The dust was stifling. The troopers sat in their saddles with one leg thrown across the pummel, fanning themselves with their hats, wiping their faces, and draining their canteens of the last drop. There was no sound of fighting. Only couriers sweeping by on foam-flecked horses showed that movements of moment were on the eve of execution. Of course, every man had his opinion of what was going to happen just there and then, but no two agreed on anything, except that it was a confoundedly hot afternoon, and that they would give a year of existence for a huge gourd of pure cold water drawn fresh from the well. The horses stood with drooping heads, as if they were like the tall grass in the fields, wilting beneath the rays of the sun. About two o'clock the voice of Colonel Randolph sounded in the stillness. Fourth, attention! Prepare to dismount! Number four, hold horses! Dismount! Every three out of the file of four sprang to the ground, committing to the lucky fourth man the charge of the horses of his file. Sabres were unbuckled, revolvers unstrapped, and hung upon the pommels of the saddles, leaving each trooper armed with his carbine, for this dismounting meant fighting on foot as infantry. Drawing off from the road the line was dressed and the order given, and slowly the line started through the woods. The cavalry was comparatively new to this work, and did not take to it naturally. Out of the saddle was out of its element. But animated with the desire to do and dare everything, the men made the best of the unfamiliar situation when the time for action arrived. They moved timidly along at first, and evidently felt insecure. This was but natural, for three years of their lives had been spent in the saddle. They had learned confidence in handling revolvers, and would charge any odds upon horseback, but on foot, with weapons unfamiliar, it was too much to expect the stolidity and steadiness of veteran infantrymen. The line of advance was like Hogarth's line of beauty, all curves. Neither did the officers understand any better than their soldiers how to align the ranks. Still, it was a superb body of men who meant mischief, and they kept along pretty well. On our way we passed a regiment of dismounted men, who seemed utterly demoralized and ready to strike for their horses at the slightest provocation. A bursting shell had made them as nervous as old women. When the end of the field was reached, the ball opened, and a rattling volley poured into the Confederate line. A battery on the left also paid it its respectful attention. This was quite too much for some of the troopers, who broke and retreated to the rear, but the majority answered with a ringing cheer and increased the pace to a run, loading and firing carbines as they went. As they were in the woods, there was but little damage done to either side. The noise of the attack and the cheering induced the foe to retreat, when the men, overcome by excitement, lay like dogs on a trail, and all organization of the fourth ceased for a time. The black horse, having in its ranks many old infantrymen, managed better, keeping the company intact and in line. Breaking through the woods, they struck a blind road, which they followed through a meadow. Here a battery sighted them and sent off a few solid shot by way of greeting. But the men were moving too rapidly to stop, pushing steadily on to a covert of woods in their front. "'If I cannot ride a horse,' said one of the dismounted troopers as he skimmed over the ground, "'I can at least hide behind a tree, and in one way or another see this fight.' So he kept up with the line. It was a line which would have made Hardy or Upton want to commit suicide 
and it surged along like an irregular long league roller which comes thundering and tossing upon the reef the patter of bullets was now heard as they struck the trunks and branches of the trees cutting off tiny twigs scattering the bark or embedding themselves in the wood a short rest was here given to enable the men to recover breath in five minutes the advance was resumed for about a half mile the few skirmishers in the front retreating at last a road running through the woods was reached when a fierce volley came pouring into the face of the troop then each man selecting a tree for himself used it as a breastwork and returned the discharge by a hot scattering fire the combatants being less than fifty yards apart for about fifteen minutes in the depths of the woods this close combat was carried on with small loss as both parties were fighting under cover the trees intercepting the missiles each side was armed with breech-loading and repeating rifles and every man pulled trigger as rapidly as he was able consequently there was a shower of lead coming and going a federal officer upon a horse imprudently exposing himself went down horse and all under a volley in the very midst of this contest there occurred an act of superb bravery or rather madness which quickens the blood in remembrance one of those reckless daring deeds most to dilate upon around the campfire but which few if any would care to emulate in a road rebel lined there dashed a yankee officer splendidly mounted and wearing the shoulder straps of a captain he evidently had mistaken the enemy for his own men and was as much startled on discovering his error as they in whose presence he found himself to them the apparition was so unexpected that for a second none thought of firing in that time he had jerked his horse savagely around a score of rifles were covering him at half pistol shot distance and as many voices shouted out to him to surrender well did he surrender there was hardly one chance in a million that he could run that gauntlet and escape the men who had drawn the bead were all crack marksmen whose aim at ten yards where he was riding was certain death not to surrender seemed madness did he no he risked the odds he drove his spurs deep in the flanks of his steed a violent spring of the animal and he was clearing the ground in mighty bounds the man bent low in his saddle shoot him shoot him cried the troopers and at every leap of the horse the rifle crack was heard I happened to be standing in the road, and I was always counted a fair shot among the black's horsemen. And as I saw his ruse de jour, I sprang into the middle of the road, and with the muzzle of my carbine bearing upon the officer's head, fired. The rifle snapped. The horse, evidently struck by one of the many bullets, flinched and quivered for a second, but kept well to his work. The wonderful promptitude and suddenness of the movement must have disconcerted the aim of the marksman for only the soldier's arm was seen to hang supine by his side, and then, like a flash, horse and rider were out of sight. Is it strange that men are fatalists? Witnessing such immunity from death, is it any wonder that the veteran comes to believe that he cannot die before his time, and shares the faith of Madame Sevigné when she declared that the cannonball which killed the great Turin was charged from all eternity to do that particular work? Every bullet has its billet solemnly avers the soldier but replies the unbeliever what induces you to get behind a tree in a fight if you are a fatalist oh that's a matter of habit answered the tattered gray back a matter of habit to preventing getting hit fate takes no account of wounds that's small work only of death 
if we protect ourselves against the bullet it's because we might be riddled through and through and fate wouldn't let us die before our time why there's and off the long-winded reb would start to give proof of his theory tell you how such a comrade died from a shot in the finger how another recovered with a bullet hole clear through his chest and so on ad infinitum until he convinces himself that his creed is correct and the only one that a soldier should entertain End of chapter 19